The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Christopher Connery. We spoke about the nature of the Chinese economy following the initiation of the market reforms of the late 1970s, the compatibility between authoritarianism and neoliberalism, specifically in the Chinese case, and we also discussed the legacy of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, which has a great many left-wing titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is Marks at the Arcade, Consoles, Controllers and Class Struggle by Jamie Woodcock. This path-breaking book offers a radical analysis of how people play, produce and profit from video games and the major role the industry plays in contemporary capitalism. In an account that will appeal to hardcore gamers, digital skeptics and the joystick curious, Woodcock unravels the vast networks of artists, software developers and factory and logistic workers whose seen and unseen labour flows into the products we consume on a gargantuan scale and shows how they are increasingly fighting back in the struggle for better conditions in an exploitative industry. In the words of Sarah Jaffa, author of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt, Jamie Woodcock has written a book as fun and engrossing as any game. Not only does he bring a sharp Marxist analysis to the video games industry, in turn he uses games to further our understanding of Marx. You can find out more about Marx at the Arcade, Consoles, Controllers and Class Struggle at haymarketbooks.org. As always, you can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, Soundcloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle, as always, is Other. And if you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. If you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Christopher Connery is Professor of Literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He writes on contemporary Chinese politics and culture, capitalist geographies, and the global 1960s. Our conversation was prompted by Christopher's excellent article on neoliberalism in China, which you can find in the January-February issue of The New Left Review, which is called Ronald Coe's in Beijing. I thought before we properly dive into the article, it might be good to chat a little bit about the nature of the Chinese economic system. There remains a a degree of debate as to whether China really ought to be conceived of as a capitalist economy, given its um, very sort of unusual features regarding the degree of state control of the economy. So, for instance, in in Britain, the the economist Michael Roberts points out that most employment and and investment is undertaken by companies that are either publicly owned or under the effective control of the Chinese Communist Party. He also points out that China has uh, this sort of unusually high ratio of public to private assets. Uh, then there's this, the, the state-owned and, and well, largely state-owned and state-directed banking system and, and capital controls and so on. 
in your essay, it's it's taken pretty much as read that that China embarked on a on a turn to capitalism following the failure of the Great Leap Forward, and that by the beginning of this century, China was clearly a capitalist economy. Could you explain why you think it does make sense to view the PRC as as capitalist rather than perhaps as some sort of special case that's neither uh, capitalist uh, nor socialist? Well, look, I I, I would say that. Um there's a lot of debate and argument about what makes uh, what what is a capitalist economy and what's a non-capitalist economy. But I think that we have really uh, enough, you know, historical experience now to see that that while capitalism is at heart one thing, it's a system based around the accumulation of capital and the growth of capital, and it's uh, in in a in a fundamental structural antagonism with the people who have to sell their labor on the labor market. <clears throat> I think that we've seen enough varieties in capitalism, you know, to have a more capacious definition of what it is. I mean, state-owned firms, you know, China is not limited to state-owned firms. There's a lot of variation within global capitalism and, you know, the nature of land tenure. Um, so so I think that the, the key thing is, I mean, I, I would say, what your stand is on China's capitalism or non-capitalism is reflective in some part of your political orientation. So I think that, you know, the for the most part, I mean, there's exceptions to this, but let's just say broadly speaking, I, I think that people who will insist on calling China non-capitalist or only a very, very qualified kind of capitalist are probably people who would like it to be more capitalist and who think that the constraints on on competition and on capitalism are uh, too heavy right now but i think that i think that anyone you know who really is taking the side of the chinese worker and is interested in you know let's say the the people the inter- the popular interests over capital interests i think we'll see that you know that that the chinese variant of capitalism though it is a distinctive variant you know, is not a different species. It's the it's the same animal. I'll, I'll say, by the way, that I know you'll be playing this at a different time, but um, we're recording this on June 4th, uh, which is the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre and the crackdown on the 80s demonstrations. Um, and, and that's a significant thing. I mean, that was really the last time that we had broad popular participation in politics in China. Um, things could have gone any number of ways, uh, you know, had June 4th turned out differently. And I think in many respects, we might get into this later, we might not, but in many respects, the China that we have today, uh, in all of its contradictory, distinctive dimensions, you know, is in certain ways a product of June 4th. Yeah, I think, as, as you say, I think we might we might come back to that, that point. Um, so, in terms of, of, of defining the, the nature of the Chinese economic system, you would be saying that this kind of um, question of the proportion of the economy, which is private or public, is, is really irrelevant. And, and whether we're talking about China or Scandinavia or the United States, these are all capitalist societies because they're characterized by uh, class relations, they're characterized by uh, a system of capital accumulation. Yeah, and um, and I would say that, the you know, beginning really in the late 90s and you know gaining strength in uh, the 2000s and 2010s the requirements for the state owned firms uh in other words the requirements for efficiency for productivity uh for profitability for competition are are not structurally different 
from uh, you know non-state-owned firms. I might I might argue, by the way, with you know some of the numbers that Michael Roberts is putting out there as far as the percentage of economy of the economy that's here or there. But uh, but but I don't want to emphasize. Um, uh, that in this in this distinction, I would say that the state-owned firm themselves are really required to operate and do operate in a manner not unlike those of the private firms, and and likewise, you know, the private firms, you know, have a fairly close relationship with the state. There's no private firm that can operate, you know, sort of like a rogue element. Um, China has, I, I would say, taken steps. Um, active or sometimes, you know, ideological or subtle steps to inhibit the growth of an independent capitalist class. I mean, there's more of that than there used to be, but it's still, you know, it, they, they don't have the latitude, they don't have the, you know, the position on the airwaves or in media that uh, capitalists in the West do. Um, you know, so there's 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 that too. I would say, though, that if you look at the operations of the firm, and particularly labor relations in the firms, um, the, the state-owned firms are not fundamentally different beasts. I'll, I'll tell you if, if the reader, the listeners might be interested, when I was publishing that piece, which I know we'll get to later, you know, one of the editors who was giving me a little bit of pushback about characterizing China as neoliberal, one of the editors made the point, and this is something that many people make about the state-owned enterprises, that they have... Uh, favorable access to capital, that they don't have to go through the investment hoops uh, and the capital raising hoops that private firms do. And that's true. That's, that's, that's a point. But, but, you know, I think it's, I think the kind of the, the capital investment side, I don't think is really the most important place to determine whether something is capitalist or not capitalist. I don't think that's the crucial sector of it. One thing I was struck by reading the article is you talk about the the nature of, of neoliberal subjectivity in China in terms that are quite familiar uh, from leftist analysis of neoliberalism in the West. So you're talking about the so-called entrepreneurialism of the self that people like Wendy Brown talk about, uh, where people uh, are encouraged to conceive of themselves almost as commercial entities or as brands. And that this is true in China and that extension of the logic of competition into every aspect of, of social and economic life. But I don't know if this rings true for you, but but for me, it feels feels like a lot of Western reporting on China what you see is is uh, the nature of the regime is almost portrayed as a kind of standard authoritarian 20th century communist regime, but with this tremendously productive capitalist economy almost bolted on and with a state security system that's able to deploy uh, very advanced technology. But that uh, that quality of, of, of neoliberal subjectivity is, is not really talked about. Yeah, I, I think that's a mistake. And I think that, you know, in, in many respects, you know, the picture of big state authoritarian China uh, has been too simplistic uh, over the years and throughout the reform period. So, for example, I mean, I, I think that Westerners always got it wrong when they talked about the pervasiveness of censorship and control of opinion, um, you know, let's say from 2000 to 2013. I think, uh, you know, people unfamiliar with China would often be surprised at the breadth of opinion and the breadth of positions that you could find in the public sphere and bookstores and magazines and journals, et cetera. Now, the, the ideological control 
has been stepped up in the last few years. And this is something that I think we'll get to later in the conversation. I mean, things have changed uh, under Xi Jinping. And, and, you know, particularly, this is a topic I'll get into later on, perhaps, particularly with regard to uh, suppression of the left. But even even given today's state, which is, I think, which I, I agree with mainstream analysis that says that the hand of the state is as heavy as it's been, uh, you know, since the crackdown on Tiananmen, since, since uh, you know, 1989, 1990. Even given that, you know, you can still walk into, you know, any of the, the big bookstores in China and uh, what you'll be confronted by, uh, you know, the main thing that you'll see are self-help books precisely aimed at the entrepreneurialism of the self, the commodification of the self, uh, taking business principles, you know, the things that we're really familiar from from uh, the West, especially the United States, and um, uh, applying that to your life. The fundamental capital logic of entrepreneurialism and competition and asset maximization, all this sort of thing, quantification, metrics, self-measurement, firm measurement, measurement in the educational institutions, that's all there in spades. I mean, that's there in a big way. That hasn't been changed one iota, you know, by the recent political crackdown. And I think that that's really, a, you know, a, a, a part of ideology formation you can't really afford to overlook. Um, and and that, that's different, you know, from a simple authoritarian state, uh, you know, the logic of a simple authoritarian state. Do you think that, in some respects, also reflects a historical degree of tolerance of debate, which in some ways has always characterized China since the revolution, as compared with somewhere like North Korea, for instance? Mm. Well, <clears throat> you're right that China... Um, okay, so here's, here's how uh, you know, some Chinese intellectuals on the left would, would explain this. They would say that you know, from 1949 until 1978, there was kind of a back and forth between advocacy for economic growth, production, efficiency, etc., and anything that it took to produce those things. There's a back and forth between those who advocated those sets of things and those who were more on the revolutionary purity side. And um, and so, so the feeling is that since 1978, it's all been on the side of economics. You know, in other words, that that you know that that the sort of revolutionary purity side of it, as as real content and not simple formalism, you know, that that side of it has dropped out. Now, what has happened since 78 and up to the present is that there is debate and there is permitted debate between uh, you know those who are those who sort of are, are looking for a free market, for uh, fewer controls on property rights, an expansion of market values versus those who advocate keeping this still kind of under control and uh, within the sphere of party authority. That debate is still happening. You know, that's still going on. Um, I would say not as not not in as lively a form as it was. But here's the thing. There's no loud or significant public voice advocating for demarketization, for going back to a planned economy. Um, you, know, you know, what's argued about 
is the degree of marketization of the economy. And I would say that, you know, even among the so-called conservatives, in other words, you know, those who are committed more to party authority, the asymptote, you know, where they're heading is, a, is, is pure market competition. And as long as that can be managed, as long as certain social side effects to that don't occur, then, you know, they're fine with full marketization. In terms of the parameters of, of the debate, one thing I was struck by in the article is that you point to the economic policy discussions of, of 1986 to 1987, um, and, you, and you mentioned that some officials were calling for workers' self-management, so not merely uh, authoritarian state ownership, but actually a, a degree of, of self-management, which I think, you know, reading that, it's, it's surprising to hear that was a live issue that laid on into the reform process, although, as you say, uh, Deng Xiaoping vetoes it. Do you see that kind of strand to a significant extent on on the Chinese left? Well, on, on the, the the Chinese left, you know, this idea of the Chinese left is something that always needs some qualification. You know, so when I mention when I'm talking to Chinese people over here, and I say the left, you know, do they say, do you mean Western style leftism or Chinese style leftism? And what they refer to by Chi what they refer to by Chinese style leftism is a kind of pro party, pro Chinese Communist Party uh, orientation. And and then there is in China, you know, there's a group of intellectuals who might be called or might even call themselves, you know, more kind of critical Marxists uh, or Western style Marxists or something like that, or or, or workerists. I mean, the the, the left right thing is a little bit different over there. But I would say on, you know, with, with, the, with the people I talked to, what was sayable in the 80s as far as uh, worker control and worker rights is not sayable now. It's not, it's not sayable publicly. Um, that, that's a significant narrowing of the sphere of discussion. And I think that the people in China, the political, cultural, etc., who would be labeled workerist their their advocacy points are mostly about wages and welfare and pension guarantees and um, dignity and respect. It's it's you 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 hear very little about workplace democracy. That sounds a little bit like the strand of nostalgia for the New Deal era that you see on parts of, uh, say, the European and 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 the American left, where. There's not a particularly uh, liberatory project for the future, but it's kind of hanging on to the gains that we won in the past. Yeah, and in the Chinese case, I mean, it's not, you know these are these these were gains that never really happened. I mean, the, the, you know the, I mean the the sort of the second working class. I mean, in, you know, in China, for the most part, you know, people talk about industrial workers, a kind of first phase of industrial labor, you know, sort of going from the 50s into the 70s. Um, you know, being the the where it was wholly state owned, um, where the, the the sort of central model was what's called the Danwei, the work unit, which was a, a, you know a labor, a living, a cultural you know environment to the new style of worker, most of whom uh, are peasants. I mean, this old working class dies off or gets cashiered. And this new working class, which is the what they call the peasant peasant workers, uh, the nomingon, um, this working class is a different working class, and and really never had 
uh, any rights to lose. I mean, they were always selling their labor on the labor market, um, exposed to a certain amount of precarity. Wages were kept low. Activism was suppressed. Um, you know, so so for for these people, um, there's no no golden age about which to be nostalgic. Hmm. So that that would more more perhaps characterize the industrial workers who who experienced the industrialization of China in the uh, early two thousands. Right, and and you know, for the for these new workers, I mean, for the new class of workers, and this is by the way a working class that isn't really growing. I mean, uh, the the new class of manufactured workers, you know, wages have been rising, and you know they're doing they're doing better now than they were doing fifteen years ago. These are modest wage gains. But that, that they haven't received through workerist action strikes or anything like that, um, you know, it's it's a sort of supply and demand thing. In the last sort of decade or so, globally, we've seen an, an increasing authoritarian turn in many of the major economies of the world, whether that's uh, the election of Narendra Modi in India or Trump's election in the United States. And of course, uh, Xi Jinping's accession to the leadership of, uh, of the PRC and, and his efforts to sort of consolidate his grip on power. And we've seen sort of increased uh, domestic political repression. I mean, those developments have led to analysts just calling time on the neoliberal era in general. But uh, if I'm reading you right, it seems that you're arguing that both globally and in the specific case of China, what we're seeing instead is a, a transition to a sort of different version of, of neoliberal governmentality. Is is that a sort of fair characterization of, of what you're saying? And, and could you sort of sketch out the nature of of that mutation of, of neoliberalism that we see uh, specifically in, in the Chinese case. Yeah, um, thanks for that. And, and listen, I, I do want to say that um, I, I, I'm not generally kind of in the predictions game. I mean, that's not something I do politically or intellectually, uh, but it's something that we all do inadvertently. And, you know, it's sort of unavoidable. But I'm 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 very much prepared to be wrong about this. Uh, I think, you know, I, I think it's hard to say. And I think I think where we're entering, the period into which we're entering, is going to be a test uh, for this neoliberal thesis. L let me put it like this. I think that neoliberalism from its inception in the 1920s as an idea, as a doctrine, you know, um, and, and it sort of, it stays in the think tanks and it stays kind of on the edges of policymaking and ideology until you know, the Reagan-Thatcher period until the late 70s and early 80s. Now, so it has this long sort of gestational period uh, before it has direct influence on, on political organization. I mean, during this phase, you know, it has quite a few mutations. I mean, it has a kind of uh, varying attitude towards the state, uh, varying attitudes towards international organizations, international organizations such as the United Nations, later the WTO, the World Bank, the IMF. Etc. You know, neoliberalism sort of changes its position on monopoly and anti-monopoly politics. So I think that it's it showed itself to be a, a flexible and um, modifiable general ideology, whose probably bottom line is an antipathy to planning, to a planned economy, a hostility to workers' rights, and a sense that competition. As the as as a sort of both an epistemolo epistemology, I mean, a way to a way for what's right to emerge, 
and competition as a mode of economic behavior, you know, this is a sort of fundamental belief of neoliberalism. I think that that's, you know, those things can weather many political international changes. So is neoliberalist doctrine something that can accommodate a, a tariff regime like we're having? Well, you know, not, not so easily. Um, but, you know, if we end up in a kind of, if we end up briefly or whatever in a kind of, uh, in a protectivist regime, will that allow these other fundamental dimensions of neoliberalism to fade away? I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, it's, it's very clear now that neoliberalism and authoritarianism can go very well together. But, you know, will, will, it, be, will, will it be too broad and general a term to keep using if we sort of continue ahead on this dismantling of the global order that seems to have begun in some ways? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 don't see, I don't see any fundamental threat, um, you know, to these on, on the sort of subjective ideological level, what you've brought up about, you know, entrepreneurialism of the self, competition, uh, self as asset, quantification, uh, measurement, competition. I, I, don't see, I don't see real threats to that, to these things. Do you think perhaps we've, you know, because we've lost sight of that history, you know, we've come to view neoliberalism as as identical with the Washington Consensus, and, and perhaps in later years even to to see it in terms of of the New Democrats in the U.S. and Blairite Cameronism, um, centrism in 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 somewhere like the the U.K. and uh, because hearing you talk about the compatibility of, of neoliberalism, it, you know, brings to mind uh, Pinochet in, in Chile, which, you know, is obviously often pointed to as the first instance of uh, neoliberalism in, in practice. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, several, several scholars of neoliberalism have made the point that um, it flourishes best. I mean, it sort of acquires its deepest and most pervasive rationality not in these right-wing regimes, but in uh, in a kind of realist, uh, you know, liberal or sort of slightly left of center regimes. Like so, Clinton and Blair, um, you know, are looked at as you know are, are generally looked at now as sort of the, the you know the real achievements of neoliberalism. I mean, this is where they get institutionalized, ideologized, um, and and rationalized. I mean that that you know that under under the right, under the far right, uh, neoliberalism is, you know, it's embraced, but it's, uh, you know, it sort of, it admits these kind of wilder fringes um, and, um, you know, is, is as such not as prone to stability. And I think we're kind of in a situation like that now. I mean, I think that the, you know, the, the sort of pseudo-populist energies that are getting mobilized in the West are kind of are, are uh, you know, some people say reactions to this sort of consolidated period of neoliberalism, the kind of Clinton, Blair, and then Obama in this country. Um, I'm not sure about that analysis, but I, 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 I'd say that, you know, we're certainly in a kind of intervallic period where some mutation is being undergone and whether it'll, whether anything that's sort of coming up now will stick or not, it's too early to tell. I think the Chinese case is a is a is a more stable one. I mean, I think that you know what the current regime in China is showing is that you can have fundamentally neoliberal forms and neoliberal 
management of society, along with a pretty constrained and, and constricted political sphere. That point on neoliberalism in some respects seeming more compatible with a, a liberal or centrist or centre-left politics, I guess when we think about the earlier period, when we think about Reagan or, in, or indeed uh, Pinochet in Chile, you have the situation of the sort of the economic liberalism going hand in hand with these appeals to authority and uh, uh, traditional authority and, and, and the family. And there is that kind of schizophrenic character and it, and it depends upon appealing to those instincts in order to pursue the economic liberalization. Uh, I mean, I wonder if the situation we're in now is, is that the kind of pure, so to speak, neoliberalism where you have kind of relative social liberalism going along with the economic liberalism just isn't viable in a situation where you have a relatively stagnant economy and, and that this necessitates a return to an appeal to these conservative instincts. Yeah, you're, you're, you've hit the nail on the head, which is that, you know, when, when I mean, this is, this is the case with Reagan and it's the case, it's been the case with, you know, every Republican president is that, um, you know, in the zeal to cut taxes, uh, cut corporate taxes and cut taxes on the wealthy, um, you know, you get into a fiscal situation that's simply unsustainable. And then, you know, you need these kind of sober and responsible Democrats in the United States to clean up and to do modest adjustments in taxes, but, but keep pursuing an austerity policy that really limits the, the scope of what one can do socially. That's basically the working out of an agenda that has been set by these, you know, more kind of unconstrained uh, forces. Um, yeah, so, so I think that, you know, in, in that respect, I think that the, the sad story that Clinton, Blair, and Obama tell is that, you know, neoliberalism wins in the end. This, this might change too. I mean, I think that, you know, we have, we have uh, an offer in the United States on the Democratic side, um, you know, a real range of politics, some of which are, some of which would be quite transformative, some of which would be kind of repetitions of what we've had before. Although, you know, the, and, and here again, I think that the China, the China contrast is a, an instructive one and a useful one. China has a, a, I mean, many outside observers point out the, the debt problem that China has. But, you know, we don't really know. We just haven't, it, it hasn't been tested yet to see what happens when uh, debt becomes a crisis or how, how China gets out of, you know, a, a, a real structural problem with debt. I mean, there's just no historical experience for us for this. Um, but on the other hand, the reform state in China since 2000 has been fairly parsimonious on the welfare side. I mean, there has there have been some expanses, uh, uh, expansions of welfare guarantees, but, you know, there's not much added to the safety net. China is still a, it's a poor and uh, economically polarized country you know, that really could have done in these years, uh, it could have done much, much more than it did do in terms of social democratic egalitarian measures. I mean, in terms of the regime's survival, do you think that's perhaps pretty short sighted? Because, I, you know, I think you can you can look at China from the outside and, and, and see it as a very stable society. 
but obviously that's been un- underpinned by you know extraordinary growth levels of, of which there is you know no real comparison outside of outside of China and perhaps without a more uh, generous safety net it it does bring into question whether the regime can survive with uh, lower levels of growth i yeah i think that's the question that's the country uh, that that's the that's the deep question uh, there, there's a book called The Myth of the Social Volcano. I forget when that came out, I, I, at least 10 years ago, that I think with pretty good survey data suggested that, um, you know, that the Chinese state could weather a fair amount of uh, economic trouble without leading to sort of social upheaval. But that's really the, that, that, that's really the million dollar question. Um, you know, the, the housing values, uh, property values in China are deemed by many outside observers to be in a precarious state. And, you know, some very good economists, I mean, there's argument about this, but there's some really good economists that say that China could easily experience, and quite soon, a, um, you know, a, a drop in property values of as much as a third. And, um, and if that happened, that could take, you know, the relatively newly minted middle slash property class and, and, and give them a huge hit. And what would happen then? Um, you know, many people think they'd take to the streets. I mean, m- many people think that would be the crisis. Uh, it could be. I, th- I think for, for me, this is really the central question is, is this system in China now capable of handling and making it through a serious economic crisis? And, and I really feel that there is no way to know that. I mean, we don't we don't know what the uh, the people are capable of in terms of social action, and um, you know we don't know how deep the state goes into, you know. I mean, the state has tried to instill in people a fear of disorder, a fear of chaos, a fear of change. When change and chaos arrive on the economic front, then what happens? I think it's really hard to tell. For me, that this is the question is uh, what, what happens when and if, you know, there's a crisis, a substantial crisis. I realize you've already said that you don't like to, to crystal ball, uh, but what would you, your guess be? I was, I was um, okay, so I'll just speak from, from personal experience that um, I taught a course, uh, you know, during the, uh, you know, this, this was, um, I think it was 2015, um, the Occupy Hong Kong movement, the with the so-called umbrella movement. I was teaching a course. I was teaching a course at that time in China about social movements, and because this was going on in in Hong Kong at the time, and because I had access to news about what was happening in Hong Kong, I, I said to the students, "Okay, while this movement is going on, we're going to spend an hour a day in, of our seminar talking about what's happening there and what's being said and." You know, and and what what really struck me, in fact, what what surprised me, is that even though these were the type of students who I would expect to be politically and intellectually sympathetic towards this kind of student movement, I mean, I thought that they would be kind of envious of the Hong Kong students and their ability to do this. They were not. They were. They really kept their distance, and they were really, you know, they they said to me. Many of them said to me. They don't think anything like that could ever happen in China. They don't think that, you know, Chinese students would ever be mobilized to do anything like that. And, uh, and, and they weren't so comfortable talking about it. Well, um, this last year, 
you know, in, in, in late summer, there was uh, in Shenzhen in southern China, there was uh, worker action at the JASIC, J-A-S-I-C factory. And a lot of and there was a, a there was there was a sort of large student support contingent, uh, a student movement, you know, Beijing, Shanghai that went down there to stand with the workers, to work with the workers. Uh, this uh, incurred a heavy, heavy state crackdown. But just a few years earlier, you know, the students would have thought that that was impossible, that that would never have happened. So I, I think that, you know, there's, there's the latent possibility for street action. And I think that there's probably, you know, given, um, you know, various reasons, I mean, given the state's purported concern for people's livelihood, et cetera, I think that there are limits on the amount of violence that the state could carry out, you know, to suppress a, a genuine and large mass movement. Um, I think I think all bets are off. I think, you know, things things could happen. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.